Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Going alright thanks Ed. Full disclosure, as you already know, but for listeners, uh, the day that we're recording is the second anniversary of my mum's death. So it's been a day and I think it's it would be better if we're all a little bit more transparent as to where we are in grieving so that's me trying to do that here so I'm sure I'll get flumped and riled up about something particularly (laughs) the news that we're about to discuss but if I seem a little subdued that's probably why it's been a teary day but I've done I've done two face masks Ed I've done an exfoliating one and then a cooling hydrating one Mm. I've watched some absolute trash (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I'm planning on getting a Chinese takeaway. So uh, I feel very much that brilliant, as they always are, but that recent Reductress article, which is woman calling everything self-care and seeing what sticks. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I am. How are you doing, pal? I, I'm doing okay, yeah. I uh, just finished having a week off. Uh, I took a week off because usually around this time of year is when I fly back to the UK to attend the London Podcast Festival and hang, hang out with friends. Of course, Obviously, that's this year, this weekend, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's been happening happening remotely, or, or they've had some they've had some events, you know, like with socially distanced, like fewer seating uh, in the King's Place uh, theatres, and then the rest of it's all been stream available to be streamed online. You know, you, you buy a ticket and then you can watch it remotely, uh, which seems to be working pretty well. I'm glad that they managed to make it happen, considering everything that's going on, that they seem to have found a solution that, you know, keeps everyone safe and still allows people to partake in what is a, you know, is always such a, a hugely enjoyable event. And I'm yeah. really sad that I, I can't go this year and, you know, do what I always do, which is just like wander around London and meet up with people. So I'll just have to do that doubly next year, assuming yeah. that <laughs> we're allowed on planes. Let's go uh, with that plan for now. <laughs> mm, yeah, although I did just get my US passport, so I can now get on the plane. <gasps> oh, uh, yeah. Howdy. But uh, not that I'm able to. <laughs> I guess I could get on an internal flight. Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> There's many states that would be happy to take Floridians at this point. Ah, you Floridians. What are you like? It has been uh, quite a nice week, very relaxing. Just not doing a huge amount, which uh, is always quite nice, you know, like, because particularly in in my line of work, like, July, August are such a blur of activity. Of course, yeah. And it's, it's always been quite nice to have that one week of going back to the UK being able to kind of like separate myself out from all of it and just unwind for a bit so even if I wasn't able to do the stuff that I would have liked to have been doing I still got to you know have a nice quiet week which you know is 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 quite nice and uh a nice reprieve uh and then you know tomorrow we'll be right back into it (laughs) but you know that's that's the job as Angela Bassett memorably said in Mission Impossible Fallout (laughs) and so we'll go on to the, the, the news for this week. And last week, we, sort of, of course, talked a little bit about 
the creative Emmys, which had happened and, you know, were just kind of wrapping up when we spoke last time. And then on the day we recorded last week was when the, you know, the primetime Emmys occurred and there were some results that were i think certainly you know you are you and i from uh, what we've talked about on this show in the past and shows that we like uh it, there was some good results uh probably the big result of the night certainly in terms of sheer number of awards but also for you know breaking emmy's emmy's history uh was Shit's creek which won nine emmys in total for its final season and achieve something that no show has ever managed in Emmy's history, which is quite interesting to think about, of sweeping all the major awards in its category. So, of course, it's a comedy, so it's competing in comedies, but it won Best Comedy, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor. It won a couple of nods, like for... I think it won for directing and also for writing as well, and they won some, some technicals. It was so dominant in the comedy category. There was one of those situations where one of the awards it lost it lost to itself because it had two writing nominations for Dan Levy in there and he can only win one and he seemed very happy with that (laughs) Um, as well as just being immensely happy when his dad won as well which was a a lovely video gif image that was shared around in the days afterwards Uh, and so that's just a wonderful thing to see it's been really nice to see how much that show has grown over the last couple of years I think partly because of the success it's enjoyed on Netflix over in the US you know I feel like once it was on a platform that people had a lot of access to as opposed to I don't know pop TV or whatever it was actually airing on in the US that really seemed to elevate it in a huge way and it, it, it kind of feels like the comedy equivalent of Breaking Bad as a show that kind of the audience grew and grew once it started its episode people were able to kind of catch up with its episodes on a channel that a lot of people actually had. It's wonderful, isn't it? I think what comes across from Schitt's Creek and not that long ago when Eugene Levy was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award for, forgive me, I forget exactly the festival, but the amount of well wishes and how just that whole show and for everyone with each other, it just seems to radiate kindness And it's the irony of the trajectory of the show being I couldn't watch the first season because I just didn't get it because Mm. the roses are really horrible. (laughs) They really go all in on how horrible they are. But I think it's very similar to Parks and Rec where the first season is pretty shoddy, but then finding their feet with the second and going, oh no, we're going to be a show about people that care about each other. And sometimes Mm. disagree on how best to do that. But that's the conflict. It's not actually about like hierarchy or kind of power struggles. It's everyone trying to do their best for each other and themselves. And Dan Levy's reaction to everyone in their category (laughs) was just glorious. And I think it's a real, it's, in, in terms of kind of the the analysis of the narrative of, of the meta narrative of the show, like it's just like, oh, it couldn't happen to nicer people, right? Like it's done now. And like you say, it's been a real slow burner and a creeper. And it's amazing how I think the internet and that collective experience of it really has really brought it into the more sort of conscious sphere i think just because like any reaction gif i go to there will be something from schitt's creek 
Like mm. they're so fantastically expressive and slightly clowny, but their performances are wall to wall incredible. Like Annie Murphy, oh my word, like she's absolutely incredible. And I think there is a kind of swan song and thank you and a sort of move in that everyone's like, yeah, it's done now. And this is the best kind of reward we can give it is to let it sweep the awards. It's it's a kind of, if not now, then when? <laughs> mm. And that it has this... Real re- return of the king. <laughs> oh, big time. It's like, yeah, okay, this is also for everything that you've done like thus far. Be really interesting. I'm really interested to see what they're going to do next. Um, like Dan Levy in particular. Um, what he's going on to do but unfortunately the Emmys weren't entirely as happy as I am for Shit's Creek the thing that makes me sad is that Rain Valdez was nominated and didn't win and mm-hmm. I just think it's again it was kind of similar with Pose and all of the incredible actors in Pose and awards and awards ceremonies are kind of that crystallization of oh well the best person for the category slash job will get it and i'm like mm-hmm. it's really funny though how like not root i don't think there's been a single trans person who's won an award mm-hmm. like this yet so funny that but hey my also my personal favorite succession not that this mm-hmm. makes up for a complete disregard of um the power and importance of of trans creatives I feel like but was the wrong conjunction to use there. Um, <laughs> Succession did pretty well. I just feel though like Jeremy Strong, I just want him to lighten up because I watched um, <laughs> I watched uh, the fantastic, I think it was a variety like uh, Zoom discussion with all of the Succession cast and they're having a whale of a time and they clearly get on so well with each other and have this fantastic chemistry that I think you often get when you when you have people who work on a kind of semi-improvisational background or like is so well cast that their dynamics just kind of feel really real but it's nice to see in 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 uh irl that they are um they clearly have a whale of a time with each other but jeremy strong just would always be like incredibly serious and dour and i'm like mm. oh are you really acting jeremy as kendall i'm not <laughs> sure you are i'm like just do a rap put on a little bow tie and do a rap that always goes down fantastically well um mm. but still e to the mmy <laughs> <laughs> yes j to the e to the r to the e m y coming in strong e m m y um i can't <laughs> rap either funnily enough uh, anyway i mean a stunning performance and it's funny that succession i like that it won in drama because i'm always like oh yeah no wait it is a drama because i think mm. it's one of the funniest things on television <laughs> and i feel like succession is kind of the wario to shit's creek creek's mario <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it also has to kind of go back to what we were talking about last week it has that Sopranos thing oh, okay. where so much of what the Roy family does to each other and to other people often innocent people who you know get ground up and destroyed by their machinations is so bleak and so like indicative and accusatory about what the the power of the ultra rich and you know like capitalism is just this like corrosive horrible thing that just destroys everything it touches but it is so fun (laughs) it's such an enjoyable watch they have so many like great moments like everything involving tom and greg is always just so hilarious like you know like and what if they send an attack child 
you know, all of those sorts of like just really pointing out the the stupidity and the obliviousness and the ridiculousness of these people with immense power, which again makes it kind of even worse. It's like, oh no, these people can like alter the course of human events and you know are responsible for misery on a like a huge scale and also they are just the dumbest people alive <laughs> you know it kind of like just adds to the horror of it all mm-hmm. but but you're right it's so funny and it is kind of weird to think of it as a as a drama but it that is kind of like the the, the only category you could really put it in you know it, it may be one of the funnier shows currently airing on television in terms of just having like great jokes being delivered brilliantly by a great cast but you know at its core particularly if you look at like the first season and and what happens with Kendall over the course of that run like it does delve into some like really like brutal horrible stuff Uh, and then in other news in terms of shows that did incredibly well and that we've talked about uh, a fair bit on this program uh, Watchmen won 11 Emmys including uh, best uh, miniseries and uh, some for Writing for Damon Lindelof, uh, Regina King won for Best Actress. Yes, uh, yes, Regina. Which, yes, having a uh, fantastic and well-deserved couple of years between this and her Oscar win and everything, just like one of the best, uh, hugely deserving all of her success. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II also won for uh, Best Actor, which I thought was great because he... He had a difficult role to Ooh, play. Oh, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and did brilliantly. I think there's also kind of like a thing there with, with Jeremy Strong where they're both doing things that seem like they wouldn't be that difficult, which is like playing just people going through something. Uh, and obviously, you know, uh, in, in Watchmen, he kind of goes through a, a, a quite a transformation. But, you know, like, it, it can be easy to, like, discount that sort of stuff if, if someone's, like, doing just kind of, like, a naturalistic performance. So to see both of those being rewarded, I think, was was, was very nice to see. And, and yeah, it's just that, that show was such a sensation last year. Watchmen was such a sensation last year. It was such a joy to watch, from, you know, week to week. And, like, we, we talked about uh, last week, I think, or a couple of weeks ago, talking about how nice it was to see the discussion about it and to see people kind of like catch on to the show and you know discuss it, even when people uh, disliked it or said it was copaganda or whatever. Like it was such a wonderful success and did was so much better than even I, as like someone who loved the leftovers and generally is very pro Damon Lindelof, was expecting. That it's it's really nice to see it uh, come through at the end of this year. Uh, and again, a, a, a great night for HBO, who always dominate the Emmys anyway. But uh, Zendaya winning Best Actress for Euphoria, who I thought was uh, was great to see. Uh, her reaction to it was was lovely, and yeah, just like a great young actor doing great work and getting recognised for it, and who I think uh, is undoubtedly kind of like going to be if she isn't already kind of a great star who's going to be around for a very very long time hopefully and yeah just just really nice to see that performance being recognized i mean i haven't been able to watch euphoria yet and i haven't really seen any of zendaya's work but it's just incredible that she is as young as she is and also is is it only the second woman of color to have won in that category and I yeah, saw it seems lot, very possible. Yeah, and I saw a lot of um, support and community and celebration um, throughout a lot of the women of colour I follow on Instagram. And that was really lovely to see because it's that thing where it's like, oh, when it's 
when it's really supported by the community, it doesn't feel like a token win. It feels like a genuine mm. step forward. So that was exciting. Um, and I would love to watch Euphoria at some point. Can we also just talk about, though, Ed, uh, Rami Youssef? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can we? Because I just, I think that's one of the funniest and most terrifying things I've ever seen. Uh, the Emmy, I, I don't know, it was just their interns or whether there's someone like, for, for all of the nominees, someone would stand outside their house with <laughs> the actual Emmy statuette. But I didn't realise they were in like full blown it wasn't even hazmat. It looked like old timey diving gear and just a wave and mm-hmm. then waddle off if you didn't win. Like, yeah. oh boy. <laughs> yeah, that video, when that video started circulating, that was just like the funniest thing. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, it, it, it was also like very informative. It's like, oh, I guess that's how they would handle this whole thing. Yeah. They would have to make all of the awards and have them ready to hand them to people in their own house or wherever their party is being held. But yeah, that was just like so funny. Just the guy being like, okay, bye. This is the only one you were nominated for. So I get to go home. What do they, they do with the spares? Did they just melt them down? Do they put them in a cupboard for next year? I don't know. Mm. Well, I guess if it's like the Oscars, because like the whole thing with like the Oscars is they don't have the name on until, until after, the half, after the event. So And everyone's got like, a, a drink and Bong Joon-ho can just rack them up. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if like that is... Just, they just have to send it off to get in, uh, engraved or whatever. Yeah. Uh, at their own expense, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah. Our final bit of news this week, uh, a story that I wasn't uh, expecting. I don't think many people were. But there is potential for the Nick, the Steven Soderbergh-directed medical drama set in New York in the early part of the 20th century, which starred uh, Andre Holland and Clive Owen and went off the air five years ago, might be coming back in some new form. Andre Holland, of course, has gone on to do a bunch of works uh, subsequently, most notably working with Barry Jenkins, and apparently he and Barry Jenkins have been working together to come up with some way of bringing the show back and the writers of the show have written a pilot and apparently they're shopping it around Soderbergh has said that if it does come back he'll be very passive involved in it because I think he kind of did more or less everything he wanted to do with the two seasons of the show that he directed during his retirement but presumably he would like be as an executive producer or whatever but not directly involved because he considers it their their baby at this point for them to work on it but uh that's very exciting i thought the nick was like a fantastic show andre holland was great on it and i'd be very happy to see him get to do more of it and uh, particularly not to spoil the show too much but you know he would be the main focus of the show Mm. if it did come back so i think that uh is, is potentially very exciting whether or not it actually happens and obviously everything is all up in the air uh, because of COVID and you know, when production on something like that would be, which would be a very kind of intensive production with lots of people involved and, and you know, would have lots of contingencies and everything and lots of protections that would need to be in place, you know, is, is very much up in the air. But I would be really happy to see that show come back because I thought it was, it was great and that it uh, you know, should have run for longer and should have had like more of uh, more recognition when it was around because i thought that was a a really singular and interesting television show i i still again one on the list love a bit of soderbergh uh, apparently quite gory i think clive owen is, is yeah. every so often kind of uh weirdly weirdly overlooked 
as being just like an incredibly solid presence. Um, mm. Love to see it. Love that Barry Jenkins could be involved. Of all yeah. the things to come back. Okay, hello, fine, cool, come on in. But hopefully not before I can catch up with the rest of it. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, we've all got plenty of time. <laughs> Burn through all 20 episodes or whatever it is that they made. So we'll go on to our main topic for this week, and uh, it is dreams in uh, film and television. This uh, came up as an idea a few weeks ago when I watched Wes Craven's A New Nightmare, the last of the kind of really proper Nightmare Before Elm Street movies, the ones to uh, feature Robert Englund as the character, the last one that Wes Craven was involved with. I mean, I guess you got Frey versus Jason, but like, I don't, I don't feel like many people would consider that uh, canon as much as a, a romp as it is but uh, you know like it was kind of the, the, the send off as far as Craven was concerned for that character it's this wonderful kind of meta thing where Craven himself is uh, is in it, in it as himself and it's all about the notion of dreams as this representation of consciousness and like having to make a new Freddy movie in order to defeat Freddy who's manifested in the real world it's a wonderful weird meta movie but the thing that kind of really stuck out to me was just how good the dream sequences are mm. which you know is unsurprising considering the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is built upon on dreams and the particular thing that really stuck out to me just as a real great encapsulation of what cinema can do as a medium for visualising dreams in a way that I think a lot of our forms really struggle to is how it can pick up on just like the weird physical sensations of dreaming and the one thing in particular is during the final kind of like big set piece of the movie the main like character is trying to get to her son who is being held by Freddy and she has to run up some stairs and when she puts her foot on the stairs the stairs turn to liquid and she kind of like sinks into it Mm. and that's such a good visualization to me of the ways in which dreams you know like as physical spaces that you wander around in your mind kind of can shift and change and i i just thought it'd be really fun to talk about the ways in which cinema which is you know to get highfalutin about it is like (laughs) the closest that any medium gets to recreating the sense of a dream uh how different films and tv shows kind of utilize dreams in those ways and and why something like that which is like nightmarish and surreal can be so effective because i feel like all of us have had dreams like that where the rules are constantly changing and you're just like trapped in a situation where the laws of physics as we know them just stop working hi for looting rooting tooting and no substituting that's us at shot reverse shot yeah I, i i hadn't even really sort of formulated it that way ed but you're so right there is something about film that that manages to encapsulate that sort of dreamlike experience i guess because we could i I could be if not highfalutin but a bit wanky in that we are essentially going into a dark space and and having these images and ideas and feelings kind of willingly sort of put to us so like cinema is a kind of lucid dream Mm. in suspension of disbelief and understanding like this is sort of happening now but transitions and all this kind of thing it's not this constant real-time perception it's it's curated and and can be I mean I mean even the most straightforward simple film is very strange like that we can very quickly understand oh this is some time later because there's a cut 
and we just accept mm. that <laughs> in the language of uh, the language of cinema and as a cognitive empirical experience. I am going to get a little bit semantic <laughs> in that when you suggested this to me, I thought, and you mentioned you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, I thought, well, this is really interesting because I think what what are we, I think dreams is such a brilliant umbrella term because I don't think a dream is necessarily just when you're, what, what happens in your, in your brain when you're asleep. Like mm-hmm. film can also show so many kind of like fantasy projections or um, daydreaming. You know, like yeah. these flights of fancy that that we um, that we go on, and the two that really um, examples that that sprung to my mind immediately were um, Amelie, in, mm-hmm. in that Amelie has this like very vivid imagination and, and the sort of the, the fantasy, and a little bit, I mean, a bit nicer, but quite sad than the your example of the of the sinking in Nightmare on Elm Street is um, mm. her her sort of turning into water and crashing to the floor when she sort of feels that rejection and that devastation. And just, I remember watching it when it, when it came out and just finding her sort of imagining all of the orgasms over Paris, like incredibly funny, even though I didn't really understand what was happening, but it sort of taught me a bit too. And then the other really vivid example for me is Heavenly Creatures. Mm, yeah. And this kind of shared dream world that's kind of a fantasy not necessarily in in sleep but just how real that is to them actually what they've created and what they shared in this a place where they have power and attention and just quite how eerie but also like perfectly them it is ah oh, i love heavenly creatures so much ed so yeah so dreaming is kind of yeah dreams and nightmares and Again, of course, uh, she's going to bring this up because uh, she hasn't for a while and death is on her mind. But Six Feet Under, I think, did like dreams and flights of fancy and kind of like magical mm. magical realism so incredibly in that yeah. you would kind of, it, it was baked into the fabric of the show so that you wouldn't realise it was a dream sequence or a fantasy until this person woke up or, or came to their senses most of the time. <laughs> you know, uh, Claire singing a a sort of a ballad about how much she hates her pantyhose is quite obviously a fantasy dream sequence but often you'd get like right up to the edge and realize that someone was you know the character was just uh fabricating it somehow or uh on a flight of fancy oh yeah no i know i i i feel like i have to mention him yes it's going to be a slight drag but you know inception um mm-hmm. it, it it did become a sort of touch point where Leonardo, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is uh, mansplaining um, cinematic techniques and dreaming to Ellen Page, who is does it very receives it very graciously. <laughs> I think that's mm-hmm. that's one of her best performances. To be like, oh, that's really interesting, man, who is just telling me everything. But but that's it. Like, um, and some of the earliest cinema was, I, I mean, thinking of like Anchian Andalou or like La Jetée, like a lot of uh, really enduring early cinema is dreams and fantasy. Mm. Um, and I think partly because, you know, it, it, it was a way to, just the techniques involved that you, that you didn't have in theatre, like it just to, just to transition, like w- without having to, show the working of like moving around a set to an audience 
that's just incredible mm. and i think also like george melier probably like as someone who made a lot of fantastical movies you know like there's all that stuff about him like really pining jump cuts to make it seem like someone was there and then they had suddenly disappeared or making people you know, the other way making characters uh, appear where they hadn't been before and you know those are obviously very uh, basic film techniques now that we're all kind of familiar with but you know at the time we're very much about creating an atmosphere of of magic which mm-hmm. you know like dream and cinema and magic they all kind of like uh, coalesce together at, at a certain point you know there was a certain point of, of trying to create like like you say create kind of a, a world for people to to enter into and to, to go back to uh, Inception but that was one of the other things that I really got me thinking about this topic as well because I, like that was one of the, the big criticisms of Incent- Inception where like the entire plot is okay we're going into all these dreams but the dreams have to seem real <laughs> yeah. because Otherwise, he'll realise it's a dream and the incepting won't work. And, like, part of, part of me is like, okay, yeah, th- that justifies, like, the reason why, like, the most exciting dream dreamy stuff in it, you know, like, the city folding in half happens before the heist really happens. And then, obviously, you have, like, the, the, the revolving fight in the corridor, which happens once Killian Murphy is asleep and in a different level of the dream or whatever... And so, like, it, it kind of makes sense that they do it that way, but it also kind of makes me think, like, you're just really justifying your not being as inventive as you could be with the, like, money and the budget that you have. Like, instead of, you know, going all out and being like, okay, it's a dream, but, you know, that means we can do anything. It's like, okay, it's a dream, but we're very selective about when we can do anything. <laughs> and, like, part, part of that's, like, budget, like... A live action film I guess there are still limits to how much you can do and if you want to be as physical a filmmaker as, as Christopher Nolan is then you're still going to hit your kind of like going to bump up against some things but when I look at something like uh, Satoshi Kon's Paprika oh yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah anime that came out 10 years ago this year I think and I, I want to say it's just been re-released on Blu-ray and I should watch again because it's such a, a dazzling achievement of uh, style and like its use of animation to be like okay this is going to happen in dreams which means we're going to constantly be flitting through different levels of reality and like things are going to just constantly be changing and shifting and it's going to be this like completely wildly inventive kind of journey into into the dream world and into these people's minds and things like that um, yeah whenever I like I watch that I think yeah you could have just done that could have just tried to do that live action that would have been cool <laughs> instead of like the craziest thing being oh there's like a train on a road <laughs> well speaking of satoshi khan i can't mm. uh, move on without mentioning perfect blue as well no like yeah. the most incredible dream nightmare i think it's still one of my favorite psychological thrillers ever let alone mm. that it's animated that that is the kind of constant kind of like when waking up becomes a jump scare in itself mm, yeah and and losing track of any kind of sense of what's happening and oh that that at the very end as well oh yeah oh perfect blue it, it perfect is correct perfect is right other uh movies that i have here is ones where dreams are really kind of integral to the plot because there are obviously mm. lots of movies where maybe dreams are are incidental or they may often they provide um 
they're omens of something to come, but they are not what the movie is about. Uh, I had, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, David Lynch shows up, obviously Mulholland Drive uh, is uh, half dream. <laughs> you know, like the first half of it is is very much like a fantasy about being placed in uh, the Naomi Watts' character's mind and this kind of like perfect image of Hollywood and then the second half is being presented with an absolute brutal reality of her life uh, if that's you know what your interpretation about I'm sure if you said that to David Lynch he would say no that's not that's not it at all but like that seems to be uh, that seems to be uh, my interpretation uh, not a, a film with dreams in it but Eraserhead I think is good as just a nightmarish film yeah yeah in terms of of when you're watching it you really feel as if someone has like David Lynch has cracked open his head and said hey come and have a look <laughs> you know and you've been like oh no <laughs> oh god yeah and I think as a razorhead was is actually uh David Lynch's most personal work as well I think he's not mm. just doing that to have other people come and have a look he's like oh, I'm gonna have a look at myself <laughs> what what is this what does this mean yes absolutely yeah I think that that definitely adds to its appeal for me as a, as a movie like where you really feel as if it's someone going through something and really trying to work through a lot of things and doing it in a way that is probably closer to their subconscious than a lot of people allow themselves to get because like, like you say like it kind of feels like something where even himself he may not necessarily be able to explain every choice it was just basically like yeah this kind of feels right this mm-hmm. feels like something i should have uh uh this this feels like the right choice for this moment the baby should look like that uh, but maybe like if you try to intellectualize it and explain why the baby should look like that he, he would be uh, maybe stymied a little bit another uh movie where where, where the whole thing basically is a dream to extent a vanilla sky oh, yeah. and also open uh, open your eyes as well the uh, movie that it was based on but i feel like uh, vanilla sky because it's so Big, it's such a bigger budget production, you know. Obviously, like big Hollywood budget. Uh, Cameron Crowe and Tom Cruise both riding high off of the the colossal success of Jerry Maguire, so they were able to kind of really go all out on it. You really do get that sense of of a character being trapped in this like dream world, and it being like really that kind of sense of glossy Hollywood itself being something of a dream and, and Cruise being trapped in it and in Vanilla Sky I think is a fairly divisive movie I've, I I really really like it really respond to it and it's got a great soundtrack as well as, as you would expect from Cameron Crowe but uh, I've always felt that's a movie where the the dreamlike aspect of it works really really well because everything feels like this really heightened world that you know Tom Cruise as a character and also maybe Tom Cruise as a person <laughs> like uh, inhabits because of his position in the world. For sure and I think there's something about, I remember the, watching it and thinking like ugh, I'm, I'm not keen on it but I couldn't deny how slick the effects were but then mm. the flip side of that is how something can be so seemingly unslick um, cause for me, it's eternal sunshine of the spotless mind every time. Mm, um, yeah. and that very kind of, can we call it a dream? Is it brain activity? Like, um, but all the in-camera effects as, uh, Joel is going through the procedure and that really genuinely very scary kind of moment is that sort of like the, 
the vi- the vignettes sort of effect of the darkness kind of closing in and running through all these halls and mm-hmm. and, thing, and yeah. things that and, and seeing people other characters in the film and and little kind of um repeated moments of dialogue and that felt very genuine as kind of a like I recognize that experience of a dream being partly a memory but also something a bit tweaked about that memory as well Mm. and why is it coming at you because it's not something that you choose you're not like looking through the rolodex of memories and picking something out like for some reason you are vividly experiencing this fragment of a previous bit of consciousness yeah and i think you also see that uh that the moment or the scene from that movie that i always think of when thinking about it being dreamlike is when he relives his childhood memory when they're trying to hide out in his childhood memory and like they do they do all the forced perspective stuff where jim carrey is meant to be child-sized underneath the table and uh kate winston's absolutely giant and that sort of thing which i think is another thing that kind of gets to a common trope of dream where you kind of like revisit a different point in your life but you have the consciousness of an adult and all this sort of stuff and everything being just like so distorted and out of uh, out of proportion in a way i think that's really effective that's something that i think you do see that that obviously michelle gondry is obsessed with dreams and he does it all the time and this sort of like science of sleep is just that for a whole movie really just of taking moments of everyday life and uh, inserting dreamline imagery like uh, Gail Garcia but now with the giant Everlong hands mm-hmm. um, and Everlong itself you know that video is, is entirely kind of about putting in dream dreamlike nightmarish Im- imagery uh, human behaviour by Bjork you know like he's yeah. he's someone who I think has built an entire career out of trying to take the feeling of a dream and like put it on screen uh, often to enervating and overly whimsical effect but when it works it works i really feel that topsy-turvy alice in wonderland almost aspect of the um the false perspective and yeah that kind Mm. of merging of adult child consciousness i think i'm probably the only person ed who's not mad about i'm thinking of ending things Mm. oh no i've definitely seen some people be like yeah it didn't work for me yeah it didn't work for me and i think it's just because I feel like Kaufman did it better in Eternal Sunshine and Synecdoche in New York. I felt like I was Mm. like, why are you making this again? And I mean, everyone I love is in it. (laughs) Literally everyone I love is in it. Although I don't think there's Tom Noonan and everything is improved by Tom Noonan, obviously. Mm. He used him a little too much in the last one. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he's just like, give give him a rest. Yeah, he's he's still he's still whacked out from uh, Anomalisa, um, being everyone else in the world. I mean, that's a lot of parts to play. Mm. But I think it just leaned a little bit too hard into. It's funny that oh god, here I am making this comparison. But strange days. Mm. What 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 Nolan did do was that Inception thing of you have to kind of make everything feel real. Whereas yeah. I'm thinking of anything's already began just so kind of it leaned far too hard into everything's about to get weird. So from off from the bat that I couldn't feel the resonance of it when it did start to kind of come away. And I think that's what um, Get Out did so incredibly in terms of the kind of Mm. hypnosis sequences is that you have this like very sturdy our reality basis. And then I love, I still love that imagery of Daniel Kaluuya um, just kind of, 
being plunged into the sunken place where he's literally sinking into the, into this sort of water in this void and and that feels like so nightmarish hmm. and that really sticks with me in terms of that sensation of feeling so insignificant against just this this negative again the sunken place but this negative space um, yeah yeah that that really stuck with me i thought that was beautifully done I, I think it's a good illustration of how something so simple as well can just have that impact where again you know the like the uh, the new nightmare thing of just like oh the stairs are liquid it's like oh great that's just like such a simple idea you can totally see how they would have done that as a practical effect or uh, one of my favorite films in the last 10 years uh, under the skin the yeah. sequences where they go into i think it is actually just called the void where you know it's just a blank space and uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson is walking through it and she's being you know, followed by uh, an assortment of uh, skinny uh, Glaswegian men and <laughs> or is it, is it Glasgow or is it Edinburgh oh it's Glasgow it's uh, definitely Glasgow it's uh, Glasgow and and a fair uh, bit of the Highlands as well she because she, you know, okay. she's always asking for directions to the M8 which I used to live by <laughs> um, but yes in uh, in Glasgow as, as they're following her and then she's obviously still walking ahead but then they're slowly sinking oh. into the ground and it is such a great visual effect of the sense of them like slowly losing their sense of being a person and being devoured for you know her sustenance essentially and yeah I, I think that is there are obviously lots of different ways to kind of do dream sequences but I think dropping in a kind of a simple uh, indication that things are off kilter can be like really massively effective uh, in a way that sometimes like going all out on how things are like super crazy is you know like not necessarily that that as impactful or it doesn't have quite the return on investment really on how it affects an audience also uh, again on Kaufman you're talking about um, I'm thinking of ending things starting off a little too weird that reminded me of the first Kaufman uh, Gondry collaboration, Human Nature, mm. which I think has the same problem in that that's a movie that starts out at a level of oddness that makes it kind of hard for you to engage with any of the characters. Whereas, you know, Eternal Sunshine works so well because you are kind of brought in to a situation that is fairly realistic and everyone kind of feels like real people and they're going through a real situation and then you get the kind of like the sci-fi premise on it and then things start to get really strange when Joel's memories start getting erased and then he starts going back into his erased memories and everything like that's a movie that kind of subtly takes you like slowly takes you in kind of guides you by the hand a little bit as as opposed to just being straight out just like strange from the beginning and then there obviously is a way to that like Eraserhead which I already mentioned like that is not a movie that kind of gently guides you into its world like straight away is like black and white cinematography horrible industrial noise on the soundtrack just like eerie set design but that's what it's going for it's not main making it's not meant to make you think oh this is the real world it's meant to be this is this is how David Lynch's like anxiety ridden (laughs) Uh, 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 consciousness views the world yeah absolutely and I think it's interesting that kind of um, that immediate uh, setup of something strange and one of the pervading kind of dream sequences for me particularly when I was starting to really get into film 
and and I think was just lasting particularly because of its Oscar attention uh, was American Beauty and mm, that we begin yeah. American Beauty even though it is essentially a suburban drama we have this voiceover of someone who's dead narrating <laughs> like we mm. like we know and it's more a kind of similar to Mural Spark and the driver's seat it's not a kind of who done it it's a how a how done it or a why done it like this dramatic irony that's kind of overreaching it but then it's all of uh, you know and uh, Mina Suvari as this like symbol of, of literally American beauty and uh, all the rose petals this kind of consistent horny <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of theme coming through and then how touching it is that they are actually they do actually manage to have a very real moment of, of intimacy when these expectations and these projections on each other fall away and uh, and for me again I just election is one for me as well in terms of these kind of flights of fancy that Matthew Broderick has um that just kind of you you I mean in novels yes there is a mm. sense that you you can you can kind of talk someone through a character's internal life but to actually observe that character have that kind of shift in cognition is just something really special and i think election is still such an incredibly funny dark weird film um that has a lot of relevance still but uh, and i think it helps see roderick as the protagonist through mm. through what is essentially an ensemble piece because everyone like everyone gets like voiceovers but it's only we only see kind of dreamy fantasy strange kind of intrusive thoughts from Broderick's character. Yeah. And I think that's a really amazing way to use that technique to still sort of have a cohesive line through and a style, but still root in your protagonist. It's it's quite subtle, actually. Mm. Yeah, I was just looking at my list to think of other movies that had particularly impactful singular dream sequences like, like those, where, you know, like, it's kind of a thing that informs the movie. I think one of my favourites... It's probably uh, Raising Arizona. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which has a couple of really great ones. I like its use of um, the biker as a symbol of impending doom, who is, like, then a literal biker who just shows up and, you know, they they end up battling at the end of the movie. But, you know, it does a really good job of using dreams as omens, but also uh, it has that incredibly gorgeous uh, final dream sequence that always makes me cry. Which is hilarious when you consider <laughs> what Ar- 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 Raising Arizona is up until that point, um, but where uh, uh, H.I. kind of like sees what happens to all the other characters in the movie and then, you know, kind of keeps going into the future and sees him and him, him and uh, his wife as like grandparents presiding over this huge family and all this sort of stuff. And it's just like this incredibly beautiful use of, of dreams as, a, you know, kind of a, a hopeful counterbalance from the, the doom-laden omen that he had seen earlier in the movie uh, and also uh, another Co- the Coen brothers don't do a huge number of dream sequences I don't think or unless I'm forgetting some but I, I always love the dream sequence in the Big Lebowski of set to uh, uh, just checked in to see what my condition my condition was in where oh, it's like a big surreal Busby Berkeley style musical number but with a bowling alley and Saddam Hussein's handing him his shoes and all of this kind of stuff which are these wonderful little details about uh, dreams kind of being the subconscious trying to make sense of stuff that have happened to us over the course of the day or whatever 
Uh, and I, I like that one, both because it's just a hugely fun sequence that's brilliantly staged and it looks so gorgeous and stands out so much visually from the rest of the movie, but is just kind of like this real nice use of real nice use of, of dreams as, uh, you know, kind of like a filtration system of all the stuff that you've gone that, that the dude has been going through. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of Busby Berkeley style, real sort of Hollywood, it kind of uh, gets across the um, kind of almost like splendor and otherworldliness of his situation that is actually mm. as bizarre as it is incre- incredibly straightforward and grim and absurd. Um, yeah, and I think the Coen brothers are very dreamy filmmakers, but you're right, those are the two that are sort of like most most clearly dream sequences but I always think of um, a serious man as well I think like the mm. kind of opening sequence with the golem yeah feels quite like like you say like in terms of omens and, and stories and dreams and I think there's so much that they work on like particularly in a serious man that, that that's the closest they get in terms of like sort of a kind of meditation on Judaism and their faith and their culture and like the sort of anxiety and fantasy and and everything that comes with that um and the idea of like wishful thinking and how sort of internal yet internalized that is and what you inherit from those kind of stories that end up being dreams or are they nightmares god i love a serious man that's such an excellent film yeah sorry i was just thinking about a serious man as well how how (laughs) good it is just the moment we go oh a serious man (laughs) (laughs) like the uh like the one rabbi staring out the window and contemplating the car park oh yes yes please uh played by simon helberg i want to say very very fun small performance yeah that's a that's a a fantastic movie and one i think does kind of have like a, a a a heightened quality to it where it all kind of feels a little bit dreamlike particularly in terms of the you know michael Sulberg not really having a sense of anything that's happening to him and not really and just kind of being like carried along through the events of his life in a way that i think does feel quite dreamlike i, I think the big lebowski has that as well but like the big lebowski is kind of like a pleasant dream where you're kind of being yeah. carried along and you're meeting all these kind of like outrageous characters and John Polito's there as a brother Seamus and all of this sort of, all this sort of stuff. Whereas uh, A Serious Man is very much kind of like a kind of slow-burning nightmare. <laughs> yeah, Barton Fink, oh my God. Is the bit where Cy Oberman keeps banging his head against the wall, isn't that a dream sequence? Yes, yeah, I think I think that is, yeah. Yeah, and he where he's also standing in front of like the the blackboard that extends into infinity yes as well which is another kind of like great little detail of making like something ordinary and every day suddenly just feel horrifying i mean we've talked a lot about the surprise in general uh <laughs> recently but um i feel like it'd be remiss of me not to mention how good that show was at, at dream sequences mm. um where it kind of did the same thing that i think we 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 talked about in terms of omens or about you know characters using or using dreams as some way of exploring something for the character in the, the, the subconscious first in the episode Funhouse, which is the one where tony has food poisoning and he spends half the episode in this kind of fugue state where he is talking to uh, a fish in a market who is voiced by the character big pussy and is where he realizes that 
uh, Big Pussy has betrayed him, that he is the, the, the rat in the organisation, and that's kind of the point at which he suddenly realises, oh God, I have to kill him. Uh, yeah. I have to kill this guy who's been one of my best friends for my entire life, or whatever. And I think that's really effective because it's, you know, using real locations, obviously, because so much of the show was actually filmed in New Jersey, and it, it kind of has this familiarity of the real world to it. And then there's this one surreal detail of he's walking past you know kind of a stool selling fish and one of the fish starts talking to him and kind of coaxes him along through this revelation uh, and then also uh, pretty much an entire episode takes place in a dream world in uh, a dream an episode called the test dream which is towards the end of the run of the series and is kind of the one again which leads him to realize that he has to kill a character where pretty much the entire episode is in this this dream and and Tony is constantly shifting between different locations as you would in a dream and being aware that he's shifting in locations and it has lots of these like fun little details my my personal favorite being when he goes he's having a meal and at the table next to him is uh, sitting next to him is Annette Benning mm. and yeah initially it's acting like oh Annette Benning is a uh, an actress in the, is playing a character in this dream and then he after a few seconds he goes and says are you Annette Benning and she goes yes and like which I think is a a real nice kind of like again like a dreamlike thing of just someone really famous showing up in your life as as a normal thing which is not something that you know generally happens all all that often and uh, I feel like that show was very good at getting the the weird texture of dreams right in a way that a lot of shows and and movies don't where it's real life but like just slightly off and so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Alice Sneddon's Bad News. It is a wonderful eight-part series of 11 to 12 minutes that you can find on YouTube uh, that she originally did for uh, New Zealand's public broadcaster. And they are really excellent, little, but still very encompassing kind of dives into uh, matters of politics and social justice in New Zealand and Alice originally uh, trained as a lawyer she's a a wonderful comedian um, and she manages to use her critical thinking and her humour with such great grace um, and I absolutely love them and in terms of just wanting something really quick but still very um, satisfying to watch cannot recommend it enough plus her full body laugh is one of the most joyous things you can watch so alice sneddon's bad news you can find it on youtube great and there'll be a link to that in the description as well if uh, people want to save themselves even having to google it i'm going to recommend a book by Stuart turton called the seven deaths of evelyn hardcastle at least in the uk for some reason that i can't uh find it's called the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle in the US which is very weird Uh, maybe that's just to make people know that it's uh, a a wacky book uh, even though it's not that wacky but uh, it's a really fun time loop novel where you know it starts off and the point of view character wakes up in the middle of a forest and is directed to go to this like old manor house and then after uh, being in there and kind of uh, meeting some of the other characters there and establishing the relationships and that he is a doctor who's a friend of the family and all this sort of stuff he 
goes to sleep and then wakes up in the body of another person and then it's the start of the same day and he goes through the same events and you know the book is essentially a murder mystery where the character of Evelyn Hardcastle is murdered every day and this main character keeps jumping between the bodies of different people at the party trying to determine who kills her and it's very fun it's very clever uh it does lots of really interesting things with the time loop mechanic and it, it kind of holds together really well using that structure i saw an interview with uh stuart turton where he described writing it as just awful <laughs> which i think is really funny uh, and also probably very indicative of how difficult it is to make any kind of like time travel or time loop story work but uh, i think he did a fantastic job of it because it is a really fun really quick read really you know just if you like time travel or body like transfer swap stories then there's a lot to like in it so that is the seven or seven and a half deaths of evelyn hardcastle which uh, is available from all good bookstores i would imagine if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Please uh, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. We can, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.